Welcome back, everyone. My name is Jerry McGuire, and I'm here with my co-host Anne McLaughlin, who's the MP for Glasgow Northeast. Hi, Anne. Hi, Jerry. How are you going? I'm I'm good. I'm good. I'm sleepy this morning because you made me do this early in the morning. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. Really, don't know why I did that. Let's do it early, Anne. Anyway, we're full of beans. Let's go parliamental. Okay. Like most people, um, I was up late last night watching TV about the pretty grim stuff that happened in Paris. And how did you find out about it? Was I watching TV? No, I think I was on Twitter and I, I started to see things and then I switched the TV on mm-hmm. to see what was going on. And oh, just like everybody else, just reeling. Reeling is the only way to describe it and shock. You know, it was mm-hmm. horrible. It's really depressing that eight folk if it's going to be eight folk eight ten folk can have such an effect yep you know i'm sure they've got their intelligence uh services over there but you know sometimes you just can't legislate for you know when people are determined to do something but it's just i just really feel that those people who went out last night out to relax on a friday night and that was the end of their lives and you know there'll be a lot of people still won't know whether their loved ones are are dead or alive and it just it just must be an awful place to be at the moment to be in mm-hmm. in Paris and France. I'm a wee bit apprehensive about what that'll do to political discourse now you know after September 11th obviously yeah. people's attitudes towards security and things um, got really tight so I just wonder what, what effect this will have in the coming weeks on our sorts of debate about immigration security all that sort of thing. Yeah well I mean all these things are um, coming up you know the counter-extremism, the uh, Snoopers Charter, the Immigration Bill, and the point of mentioning the Immigration Bill is that, you know, there was a lot of talk on, oh, not just on Twitter, the BBC last night were talking about, very early on, talking about how it's easy to come in as a refugee when you're actually a terrorist, and I just thought, how unhelpful is that? Who knows how many of the people killed last night we're refugees, refugees who are running from this sort of behaviour. Now we don't know, we don't know who did that last night. Well, as far as I'm aware, at this time, mm-hmm. we don't know who it was. Um, but the point is that refugees flee from that kind of thing. And yes, amongst them might be people who come to cause problems, but amongst all of us, there are people who come to cause problems. And and it just makes me a little nervous that there are going to be people who will be um, targeted because of this. Um, and in fact, Hamza Youssef, the Scottish government minister, got a tweet last night saying that the tweeter, or the Twitterer, whatever you call them, thought that he was, he was now dangerous to Britain. Um, and... That is because he's a Muslim, yeah. which I found incredible. There was a bit of backtracking by, from that guy later on. I didn't say anything about race. <laughs> well, what did you mean by like you people? There was a kind of you people vibe to that tweet, and it was pretty good. So yeah, I'm just I'm obviously my thoughts are with people who've lost lives and injured and been terrified, even if they're okay over the past few days. Mm. Um, but kind of looking forward to the coming weeks. I'm just a wee bit worried about how public debate will maybe go in the country. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, right now, I mean all that's going on in my mind in that respect really is just about the people who've who've died and their families and friends um but you know there is there is a possibility there will be some kind of backlash in the future and we need to be prepared for that and you had your meet an event in high kill last week <laughs> Um, I didn't get to go unfortunately I'm really sorry I wasn't there so how was it? 
Um, <laughs> I don't think I called it a meet an event. Was it not like an evening, an evening with Anne? No, nothing, nothing like that. No, 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 no. We've Anne had presents. This, we've had this in a previous podcast. Oh, right. I was not playing the piano, right, no, okay. I was just singing. Um, yeah, it was the sixth month on. So last Saturday was six months uh, since I'd been elected. And it was about reporting back to people about what I've done. I have to tell you, though, when I was tweeting to say, I'm doing this report back, you can come and ask me any questions, and then we're going to all get together and groups and talk about what you want for your area. I thought that was a good thing. Labour students <laughs> tweeted, oh. why had I waited six months? <laughs> Which I find <laughs> hilarious, as if I've done nothing in the last yeah. six months. Obviously, I've had dozens of surgeries, and this is something that I've never seen any of their MPs doing, so I thought that was quite astonishing, but it did make me laugh. Well, Labour are, Labour are known for being men of action. Yeah. You know, they're, yeah. They, they would have, if they'd been elected... More than one of them had been elected. Oh my God, we've seen so much stuff done in the first six They'd have got round to eventually after being elected for 20 years. Um, Yeah, no, it was really good. It was was great. Um, I had a lot of people apologising because of the weather, because the weather was absolutely atrocious until we got to this week's weather, which was even worse. Mm -hmm. But we had a really good number. Um, We had lots of people from different community organisations. Lots of individuals came along. And there was a real buzz about the place. I was, I mean, even I was taken aback with how well it went. People were really excited and and really engaged. And there were a number of different themes came through. And I'll maybe talk about that next week because we're still working on the feedback and putting together a, a report on what each of the staff members, I mean, I've got a brilliant staff team and they put it together. So we're going to sit down next week and talk about that and what those broad themes were that came through. But there were some, you know, that were very, very clear things that people want me to do and I'll be doing them. What were those types of things that you kind of heard? I know you're still to analyse all your information, but, you know, what were the... Oh, all right. What was the common stuff people Well, okay, I'm going to tell you the one big thing that is absolutely definite that's come from each of the groups, and there were a number of different groups all discussing it. The one big thing is that they love the Community Empowerment Act and it will be used in Glasgow North East. It will be used to its fullest potential um, because some people didn't know about it, but the, what they were expressing was things that they wanted to do that the Community Empowerment Act empowers them to do, which is probably why some people were getting so excited. So it was strange because what I did was I went round each of the tables and I just listened. I didn't contribute. I listened to what people were saying. And it was very clear that that was the one thing that was coming through, that people want to take ownership of their communities and they want to be empowered to do that. And that's exactly what that act does. Just before that, Anne, I heard you got some last minute calls to get involved in some sort of Friends Alexandra Park thing. Do you want to tell us a wee bit about that? <laughs> well, Friends of Alexandra Park had invited me to their launch. They'd invited me maybe about a month before the event, so it was the same day as my big event and uh, I said I could go along for 20 minutes en route to to this Um, and I asked if they wanted me to do anything say a few words and they said yeah that would be great. Um, It's my local park and I'm the MP so it made sense Um, and actually you know we'll maybe talk about this another time because Friends of Alexandra Park are fantastic and there's a lot of really interesting things happening at the park like there's going to be an orchard where people can get free fruit so um, lots of plans but anyway so I was going along to the launch and the day before 
Uh, I got a phone call from the uh, a council official telling me that the organiser of this had got it wrong and wasn't used to these things and didn't understand that the protocol was that I was not allowed to speak, basically, because we can't be political. And we said the usual, because we, we've had this a few times before, it's not political, she's the MP, uh, I'm the MP for the area, you know, just saying a few words, not going to say anything political, and I had no intentions. I, you know, I know, you know, the there's a time and a place. Yeah, now's not the time to scream into the mic about the SNP. Like, <laughs> <laughs> see you Labour guy. It's not that wouldn't have been it. You'd have been there as like the dignitary from the you know the Aye, well dignitary. Well, yeah, I think like that idea. Yeah. Um but you know, I had no intentions of doing anything and they know that. But I was really surprised that a council official is allowed to phone an MP and tell the MP that they are not allowed to speak at an event and it's against protocol and I know the organisers got several phone calls from Labour people asking why I was speaking how dare the MP for the area be speaking at a <laughs> local event in the park along the road from our house and and basically they were saying but the point was she had invited uh, myself and the local Labour MSP and local councillors and nobody got back to her apart from me despite the fact that she chased them up and they still didn't get back to her. And then when they heard that I was speaking, suddenly they this were was an issue. outraged that I would speak. So I decided not to speak just to save any problems yeah. for them. But um, the one good thing is that, you know, I was only able to go for 20 minutes because I had to get to my event. But it meant that they who had not planned to be there had to be there. And um, it was a very wet day and I hope they got absolutely soaked on the way home. <laughs> At least you had. To, at least you, you forced out some some people to come out and support the the park. So you yeah. did your job. You didn't yeah. speak, but you got them out of their beds. Yeah, made them work. It's a really sexy topic, the off-patents drugs bill. That's the kind of thing that really excites you. you think, oh, this sounds like a meaty topic. Um, and it seemed like it was a bit of a, a bit of a mess, really. Um, do you know anything about what happened to the off-patents drugs bill? It was, I mean, I, I wasn't there. It was a Friday. I wasn't there, but a number of my colleagues were there because constituents had got in touch with them and asked them to stay for that debate. And it was just a sham. Um, basically, they have this parliamentary tactic that if the minister, when the minister gets up to speak, he can speak for as long as he wishes to speak. And so he talked, I might have this wrong, I think it was an hour and a half, an hour and 45. Whatever length of time it was, he talked until there was no time left and therefore they couldn't take a vote on it. And, and the you know, if I think I think what that means is that it has fallen and the opportunity to get access to these drugs cheaply to help people with really you know, bad medical conditions has gone. It seems like a really strange thing to be against. I can understand because from my understanding of it, it's to use medications that are intended for one purpose, but use them for another. And mm. I think lots of drugs throughout, like aspirin, I think started off, there's many drugs that started off as a treatment for X and get used for Y. So I can understand someone having an argument against that from a safety point of view mm. and saying this isn't right. But just to talk it out, Mm. What's going on? I, I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much, but what I wonder what's going on there. Like, wh why is no. this such a big deal to, to let, let this bill die rather than kind of pass it? I don't want to speculate either, but other people who speculate speculate that it's to do with pharmaceutical companies um, losing out on their massive profits and, you know, they don't want to do that. So, but I wouldn't speculate in that direction. I'm just saying that's what yeah. other people are saying. That's, yeah, definitely. Other people are saying that. And you intervened in a debate to ask a question on Eritrea. Mm. Now, I don't know much about Eritrea, so what was the debate about? 
Um, I think it was entitled Human Rights in Eritrea, and there are not many right. in Eritrea. Um, oh, there's, you know, I know a lot of Eritreans in Glasgow who, are some of whom are friends of mine and have been for a number of years. And and the the striking thing is that I was friends with them for a couple of years before I even knew that they'd fled Eritrea and what, some of the stuff I'm sure I don't know at all that they'd been through. Um, so the government in Eritrea is. Um, really quite uh, vicious and that's it was a Labour MP who brought the debate to the House. My intervention was about government supporters in Eritrea coming to the UK and infiltrating Eritrean community groups here to stop them campaigning against the government. I've got Eritrean friends who've been threatened by these infiltrators and you know they've the, what they've been through to get away from Eritrea and get here in the first place would make your hair stand on end. So to finally reach safety and not a particularly great lifestyle or anything, but at least you're safe and then discover that, that, that these uh, people have come over and infiltrated and practically followed you here um, is terrifying. And I was basically just asking if the government would do something about it, you know, but I think basically they just said, phone the police. Phone the police. That sounds like great advice for people yeah. who are being harassed by <laughs> political agitators. Phone the police. Helpful. So you didn't feel like you got a very good response out of that, then? Did the question just sort of fade? Yeah, I mean, but I think I'm going to push it in terms of written questions and writing to to the minister responsible. Um, but yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a huge. I wasn't greatly satisfied. But I was I was pleased just to be able to raise it and put that on the record. You wrote a Facebook message. Um, showing real frustration with the views you're hearing in the immigration bill oh. committee. So, <laughs> so talk me through it. What does so the committee? It's a committee room. Yep. So one of those beautiful little square rooms with the the tables all the way around it, and the fireplace in the back, and Benjamin Disraeli on the wall. Yes, it's exactly as you see in the film Suffragette. <laughs> I've not seen that film yet. Well, you'll see our committee rooms. No well. change at all whatsoever <laughs> um but yeah it's exactly yeah one of those committee rooms so what kind of stuff are you hearing like what kind of attitudes are you hearing from the amassed group of white men in suits basically the the committee's got i think it's 16 people on it nine tories five labor and two snp something like that all i know is every vote we are every the vote on every amendment we put forward is nine seven so we're always defeated um they choose they choose to uh, highlight the things that the Daily Mail would highlight. They choose to highlight the things that feed into really negative views of people who come to live in this country. I mean, the worst thing for me, although I think we've managed to clear it all up now, the worst thing for me was early on in the committee, um, somebody was talking about people being uh, trafficked here and how this immigration bill, making it much harder for people to come and emigrate to the UK would surely help people because they would not allow themselves to be trafficked here and and I just you know that astonished me I had to point out that trafficking is coercion it's threats it's you know nobody allows themselves to be trafficked and at that stage I think that was the first meeting of the committee several of them argued with me several of them intervened to tell me I was wrong but what we seem to have established is the media has sort of neatly segued from the term people smuggler to the term people trafficker so these people that you see coming over on boats from Syria 
they they refer to them as people traffickers and they refer to them being trafficked. No, they're not. They're people smugglers. Yes, they've paid them to bring them over here. That is entirely different. Although, you know, obviously we need to, to help them. But that's an entirely different thing to people being trafficked. So there was that definition of trafficking and this idea that people who are trafficked here choose to be trafficked seems um terrifying that that's like you're you're having to debate basic definitions at the start of an immigration but you feel like that level of analysis should happen at a much higher level than having to Absolutely. debate whether someone has paid to come here or whether someone's basically been thrown in the back of a van and mm. told they were coming here well when i described at that first meeting i described you know somebody being tied up thrown in the back of a van one of them said that's kidnap and i said what do you think trafficking is However, progress was made because at the last meeting that I was at on Thursday, I mentioned that again and I said, but I think we've all managed to work out how that happened and understand that trafficking and, and I could see some of the Tories nodding in agreement with me. But, you know, there's other stuff as well, like the, the just the general attitude, like <laughs> there was one guy who we were talking about um, the problem with uh, part of the immigration bill is that it will mean that asylum seekers, who they call failed asylum seekers and I call refused asylum seekers, I think language is really important. Mm -hmm. So refused asylum seekers who have children will be made destitute, okay? And so destitute meaning no roof over their head and no money. And um, we were arguing, but under the different children's acts, different ones in Scotland to England, you have a duty to take care of children. And uh, one of the Tory MPs appeared to be arguing that maybe we should be amending the children's acts so that we don't have to take care of asylum seeker children. And, uh, and, and you know, we were all just sitting there going, oh, all right, let's amend it so that we can starve children and it's legal to starve them. And, and at one point I was making a point about this and somebody stood up, a Tory MP stood up and he said, uh, the Honourable Lady seems to be suggesting that if parents abdicate responsibility for their children, we should just pick up where they left off. And I thought, well, is that not our duty? Of course. <laughs> you know, if a parent can't look after their child in this country, yes. We, you know, if a parent, and I, I did argue, I don't think they are abdicating responsibility by refusing to take them back to somewhere where they could end up dead. But that's what he was arguing. But yes, we have a duty. There's, um, you know, there's a legal and a moral obligation to pick up and look after children if their parents are unable to, or their parents just don't. That's terrifying. That's really dehumanising. Yeah, that he didn't it, know if, that. If, if that was, if that was a chat about a a white kid from Bristol, that wouldn't even yeah, be an issue. It would. They wouldn't even be having that discussion. It but it, what's different about that child? Yeah. That they can have this chat, and it's because obviously they're just in their head whether they mm. they believe it or they've been educated to believe it. Yeah. They believe that they're not human in some yeah. way. Yeah, it's, it's frightening. It's absolutely frightening. So this um, committee, so you're, you're, you're working on the immigration bill. What kind of outcome is going to happen with that? So you're working, debating on it, talking about amendments. When your committee has concluded, mm -hmm. what's the output of that? So on Tuesday, I'm not entirely sure I can answer this accurately, but this is what I think happens. On Tuesday, it's the final sitting of the Immigration Bill Committee and a report then goes to the House of Lords and the House of Lords debate it and put forward amendments and then it comes back to the House of Commons for its final hearing. At that stage um, we can also put forward amendments to the whole House and we will. There's all sorts of 
uh, regulations and sometimes mm. it's just protocol about what you can do if you've already put forward an amendment at committee stage and it's been thrashed out and it's been rejected. Often that's a reason why the Speaker won't accept the amendment at the final stage, but I don't know, we just need to work our way through mm -hmm. that. And is it a, in general terms, is it like a majority vote whether the committee's going to recommend it? Yeah, the committee will recommend it because they've got these, you know, they've got a majority built into the committee. No, sorry, what I meant was about each individual issue. So if you've proposed an amendment, say to is it just is it just a vote in that room to see whether that's something the committee puts forward to the Lords? Yes, every yeah. I mean, there were dozens of amendments, and um, like for instance, I moved uh, mostly it's joint amendments from Labour and SNP, and we consider them one by one. Um, in the committee stage uh, and uh, I moved one that the Labour Party couldn't commit to. I'm sure those on the committee wished they could but unfortunately they also had this in their manifesto. But um, I moved an amendment to remove completely the clause or part, mm -hmm. ah, I get mixed up with the terminology, but the bit that says there is a requirement for all front-facing public sector workers to be fluent in English. And the reason I moved it that be shifted, um, be deleted, is because uh, there already is. I've never had a firefighter come and put out a fire and need an interpreter by his side. I've never gone into a doctor's surgery and had somebody that couldn't speak English to me. I've never had a nurse speak or a teacher. Where would you how where would you have a teacher that, that couldn't speak English? It's just ridiculous. And the only reason they've got that in there is because they're pandering to the tabloids and the racists out there. And the point I was making to them was that they are legitimizing racist rantings and that's the whole reason for having that in there um, because they couldn't give me an example they couldn't between them give me a single example of any front-facing public sector worker who couldn't speak English I could give them loads of examples of people who had a different colour of skin or a different accent who were accused of not being able to speak English by intolerant people, intolerant racists who just couldn't be bothered tuning in to their, their accent but they couldn't give any examples whatsoever of why this was necessary. Even putting their hat on for a minute, even if you think that this is, this is right, we need to have this, what you're going to create then is part of a job application process that has to assess English literacy. Mm -hmm. So you're going to make it mandated for employers at that point. What will happen with that if that yep. was to be included is that then there has to be an English test. Yep. And you'll suddenly get a lot of people failing that test. What's in that test? What's not in that test? What kind of level of reading? It's yes. just really counterproductive. You're just creating a whole bureaucracy around something that would actually be picked up at interview stage if somebody couldn't communicate. Exactly. But also, it kind of makes me think if somebody um, is born and brought up here but their English is not very good, can they not, do you know, mm. their written English isn't very yeah. good, but their spoken English mm. is fine. I, I don't know, there's all sorts of reasons why it's wrong, but it's completely unnecessary. So people can now put in complaints, well, if this goes through, people can put in complaints. Um, and so, you know, it's just going to take up an awful lot of time. These public sector organisations that are having their funding cut are going to have to spend time and money assessing complaints from, let's face it, there's a lot of idiots out there who will love mm being able to complain about so-and-so that can he speak English when they can speak better English than they can. Also, just to change tack a wee bit, um, I read a transcript about a difficult story you talked about, and I know that 
you know, you felt in some ways it was a pure beamer to have to talk <laughs> yeah. about the topic. But, you know, a woman who didn't talk about uh, a woman who didn't have female sanitary products and was basically robbed of her dignity because of her situation. Yep. Someone had been turned down for asylum. Um, I thought that was a really powerful thing to do. And it was, I know it was a, a, a difficult topic to talk about and not one that's talked about a lot. But you stood up in front of folk and, and, and told this woman's story. Um, what kind of reaction did you get from people as you were, as you were <laughs> telling this story in front of them? <laughs> Oh, do you know, can I just say, I had to tell it because I knew this woman really well and I don't know what's happened to her. I, I mean, I knew her really well. My sister knew her a lot better and um, I just, you know, I just felt I had to... But she's only one person. This is what happens when you make people destitute and you leave them with no zero pence per week to live on. You know, they may be able to get food from a charity if they're lucky, but, you know, it's it's very, you know, we don't always think about these other things. And, and she was robbed of her dignity because, you know, she was on a bus one day and there was a wee kid pointing at her because she was bleeding and she hadn't realised. And, you know, she was a lovely, quiet, very religious woman. And that just killed her inside. It was just awful. Um, the reaction I got... Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I was trying not to look at people because I was actually really embarrassed talking about this, but I kept using the words like periods, sanitary towels, bleeding, all the things that make me feel uncomfortable. The, the point of doing it was, and I said this to them, I wanted everyone in the room to feel uncomfortable because I wanted them to realise that that how we were feeling was absolutely nothing to how these women must feel when they go through that. And that is what we were voting on. We were we were proposing an amendment that if you're refused asylum whilst you're still in this country, you get at least 60% of income support, which is nothing. It's £36 a week or something like that. But that I was focusing in on the one reason why you couldn't leave people with nothing. And, and I was really hoping that some of the Tories, particularly Tory women, might just say, right, OK, I'm going to vote for that amendment. But I was just arms folded, not listening, not listening. Um, yeah, there was a few people kind of shifting and sort of doing that look that says, I'm not uncomfortable, I'm not uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> when in, in actual fact they were. And I, and I understand that, you know, but I, d I just wish that... I know they listened. I know they listened because what the Tories do in that committee is most of them sit on their iPads or their phones, they don't look up, but they didn't do that. To be fair, they didn't do that when I was speaking about this. They did actually listen. Didn't make any difference in the end, mm. but I'll maybe try it again on the floor of the House of Commons. Yeah, I think you could get some, some good publicity for this. I'm not saying this is going to become something you want to champion or you want to kind of talk about all the time, but I think it's something that like I've not heard of before being discussed in Parliament, and it's such yeah. an everyday issue for so many people, and I think it's really telling that it's actually not an issue for 50% of folk. <laughs> Yeah, and it's fifty yeah. percent of folk who are, you know, seventy five, eighty percent of folk in that place. Yeah, um, good point. So, so I think, yeah, if you could, I think we should, you should raise awareness for that. No, I will do. I will. I'll do it again in the, the when it comes back to the House of Commons. Now, everyone, I want you to cast your minds back to before the referendum when Scotland needed to vote no to stop the sky falling on our heads. Well, it looks like despite voting no, the sky is still falling. The other day, HMRC announced that they'll be closing several tax offices in Scotland. But this was a talking point by Better Together. You know, vote no to save jobs in the Nauld. Um, now, apparently, 2,000 jobs are going to come Nauld. And you think, OK, cutbacks. Everyone's, everyone's having cutbacks. We're all suffering underneath it. But 2,800 are being created in Croydon. 
an attacks mm-hmm. super centre down, down in South England. Um, were you surprised by that, Anne? Uh, surprised? Um, I, I wasn't expecting it. Um, when it happened, I wasn't necessarily surprised. Well, I actually am a wee bit. It's a bit, it's kind of brutal and it's kind of blatant. Um, and and for me, I think I feel I feel a bit bad when I when I read people posting this. You know, there's an image going round of some better together Labour and Tories together standing holding a banner outside the HMRC and and. East Kilbride, I think it is, saying, no, not in Cumbernauld, sorry, saying, you know, vote vote no to save mm-hmm. all these jobs. And then, um, you know, they were lying because they couldn't guarantee to save them, didn't save them. Um, and oh, I don't know, it just is really utterly depressing. And we've got another, there's no doubt we have another four and a half years at least of this. And, and they don't care. They don't care. It's so blatant. You know, we'll take this number of jobs from you and we'll create this number of jobs there. Well, why did they not create the jobs, you know, in Scotland for the people who already work for the tax office who are losing the jobs? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's really depressing. I just wonder if there was a playbook somewhere because there seems to be a lot of things like that where if you voted yes, X would happen. Mm-hmm. And those those numbers and those ideas seem to be really well formed. And I wonder if that was already in a plan somewhere. Yeah. They knew they were going to close HMRC in, in Cumbernauld. Yeah. You know, for £1,400 figure, if, if you, you'd be worse off if you voted mm. uh, yes. And you know, tax credits, etc. have worked out that for quite a few folk, average families are £1,400 worse off. Yeah. I just think of the whole list of figures that were going to be implemented and they just decided to attribute them to a yes vote. Aye, maybe you're right. Maybe that's what, and maybe it was really that blatant. Maybe it was really that cold. Uh, although I think some people that were out campaigning for a no vote will not have realised how cold and cynical British government can be. I, I mean, I do think that what they're doing now is they're just they're just giving us all this ammunition for the next referendum. You know, it'll be so clear. We, and we have we have to wait until the time is right. Of course we do, but when we have to have that referendum relatively soon, while the memories are fresh in people's minds, you know, while they're still reeling from having lost their job, you know, and they still remember that they were told vote no to save your job, and so they voted no and they took their job away just a year and a bit later. Mm-hmm. It's just I find it all really depressing. And I'm worried about people who just before Christmas have discovered that, you know, because it's so hard looking, it's so hard looking for a job. I know when I left the Scottish Parliament, I mean, obviously I've been unemployed at various points in my life. When I left the Scottish Parliament, I really couldn't find a job. I had to become self-employed because I couldn't find a job. And I would put my heart and soul into every application that I did. And I had so much good experience gained as an MSP, not to mention all the experience I had before. I mean, I would have said I was a pretty good candidate and I couldn't get a job. I could barely get an interview. Um, And just to think that that's what lies ahead for so many more people now and how much they're going to struggle and how much it damages your self-esteem, not to mention your finances, you know, if you're if you're unemployed. It's just and, and also I happen to know that they've these workers have not had an easy few years. They've really been quite under-resourced and overstretched. And I guess they must be thinking to themselves, you know, I gave so much to that. I really, 
you know, sacrifice so much to do a good job there and this is the thanks I get and it must just be absolutely devastating for them. And also this, the government's got a real responsibility as a, as a really big employer. So 2,000 people unemployed is, is what we're reading. So that's 2,000 job seekers. It's not like a, mm. a, a place that one person has left, two people have left. So only are 2,000 people yep. in the Cumbernauld area looking for work. So that's yep. going to make an already challenging situation oh. even worse for those people. So much worse. To talk about the Scotland bill. Um, this is really bleak. It was meant to be the big gesture, you know, Gordon Brown's as near to federalism statement made real. <laughs> and the debate for the entire thing, from from my reading of it, uh, lasted about an afternoon. Yeah. Um, and very little came out of it. Um, the only motions that were voted on it, I didn't realise this, were handpicked by the mm. Speaker. Mm-hmm. So the entirety of the bill this wasn't even on the table. Um, so some things that didn't make, um, make it through the vote are equal opportunities legislation, uh, tax credits. <laughs> Um, the power to hold another referendum and Crown Estates revenues. I know mm. that last one doesn't sound very exciting, but some big stuff in there. When Mary Black asked for an assurance that any top-up payments made to people from the Scottish Parliament wouldn't be taken by the Tory government, um, basically it was refused. What was the low point to you for that debate? Uh, the low point for me was most definitely when the Labour Party voted with the Tories to stop the Scottish government or Scottish Parliament having control over tax credits. I was I was stunned. I was sitting, I just voted, and I was sitting next to Brendan O'Hara, the Argyle MP, and I said to him, Labour didn't vote with the Tories to stop us getting control of our tax credits, did they? And he said, aye. And then he said, and I said, no. Why would they do that when they've been banging on about demanding that the Scottish, the SNP government, say that they will, they will top up mm-hmm. uh, people... If you know, and and he said, oh, maybe you're no, maybe they never, maybe, maybe they abst- they didn't vote with us, and maybe they abstained, and and he actually started to doubt himself. This is before the result was announced, so he went away and asked Daley Whiteford, and um, yeah, right enough, and we were so taken aback, I, I mean, genuinely taken aback, that they would vote to stop the Scottish government being able to do the thing that they wanted us to do. So now what they're saying is, well, we didn't want you to have power over tax credits, the whole system. What we wanted you to do was to take money from another budget, from your fixed budget, take money from somewhere else and top up for those people uh, who are suffering from tax credit cuts in the way that you did with the bedroom tax. So they want us to do it, but they want us to punish somebody else by removing funding from them. And that, that was just a real low point for me because I don't, I don't understand it. When you think about the Labour Party and you think how far they've lost their way and you can still be surprised by it, you still think, like, come on now, you can't, you can't actually do that. Yeah, that's, not, that's not how you're going to vote and they still surprise you to this day. I think it shows, it shows I think, the importance of the Labour Party in people's minds that you still believe, surely in there somewhere, I know. they're not that bad. And I know. They, just, they just prove themselves to be that bad. Well, in actual fact, there was another moment where... Uh, to say I was gobsmacked is an understatement and that was when Yvette Cooper got up now she'd done it at the end of Scottish Questions but she did it again in the Scotland Bill debate and basically said that the Scottish Parliament shouldn't have control over abortion now regardless of your thoughts on abortion her argument was that it was a sensitive issue and we were a small legislature and basically seemed to be saying that we couldn't be trusted. And I think what she meant was couldn't be trusted to have the same regulations that they have in England. Well, 
you know, we should have whatever the people of Scotland want us to have. But it was the point of principle that she was making. And we just, there was a few of us sitting there thinking imperialism just hasn't died. You know, our imperial masters still, she was very passionate in saying, we cannot allow Scotland to decide on this. This is wrong. It's so wrong. And, you know, I tweeted about it and I got a bit of abuse about it. People saying, you know, what did, um, what women's groups did you speak to about this? And I thought, well, in actual fact, I don't lobby women's groups. Groups lobby us. And I have not been lobbied by anyone suggesting that there was any issue with that being devolved to the Scottish Parliament. But it just, it really just did give the game away. Um, yeah, and, and the weird thing was, she went on about it so much. David Mundell, the sole Tory in Scotland, had to tell her that they were starting to be very offensive to the people of Scotland. David Mundell, the Tory, had to tell the Labour MPs to stop being so offensive to the people of Scotland. Uh, you know it's a bad day when that's happening. <laughs> yeah, when David Mundell's your hero, that's when you know it's a bad day. <laughs> on the 18th of this month, and you're due to speak at an event in Parliament on Islamophobia. Um, what's the background to the event? How did you get involved in it? Um, I think uh, it's the same, it's organised by the same people that organised something similar at SNP conference um, and I'd gone along to their meeting. I think because I'm the civil liberty spokesperson for the party, they'd asked me to do it. So basically there's MPs from every party coming along to address uh, and I think I'll simply be making the point that we always have to be mindful of the rise in Islamophobia and the the key triggers. Now, we don't know what happened in Paris. Well, we know what happened in Paris, but we don't know who was responsible. Uh, there's a lot of talk that it could have been down to Daesh. Um, and certainly there's a lot of Islamophobia being expressed online at the moment. And as I said earlier, Hamza Yusuf, the MSP and Scottish Government Minister, has been had people telling him that, that they're afraid of him now. And that's just a really ridiculous situation. But also, you know, there's a lot of people on Twitter who they don't want to be attacking. They don't want to feel this way. They just need a bit of guidance, a bit of education. They just need to understand a bit better. So I think sometimes what we need to do is not go on the attack, but understand where people's fears come from and always be ready to address those fears. I've also seen a rather nifty looking graphic on Facebook titled Parliament on the Move. <laughs> is that my Puzzle Park thing? Yes. I, I, so was, I, my first thought was maybe it's because, you know, Parliament's basically sinking into the Thames. <laughs> I thought it was maybe yeah. something to do like a fundraising and a rattle can for four billion to put the building <laughs> back up again. But it's not that, I'm guessing. No, and and um, neither are we suggesting that the Parliament should be in Puzzle Park. But it's not the whole Parliament, it's just my office. Um, well, you know... Whatever you cite your office, you're not going to be accessible to some people. I feel that Postle Park is one of the areas where there's so much, um, let's just say deprivation generally, that it's hard sometimes for people to A, ask anybody for help and B, get themselves to physically to the place where... So, so basically, my office decants on the second Monday of every month to Postle Point Community Centre between 10 and 4. They are stationed in the community cafe. They take their laptops, they take their phones, they get on with their work. And when people come in, and there's a lot of groups, uh, there's a job club, there's a free community cafe, there's different pensioners groups. And when they come in, um, they're made aware that staff from the MP's office um, 
are there to help them and we've had loads of folk coming and asking for help and it's really good and we've had loads of good feedback people really appreciate that you're making the effort to go out there to them so we're doing that uh, once a month i'm going to look for somewhere uh, for the other end of the constituency so if anyone out there can think of anywhere that can give us office space and plus a wee bit of private space in case a constituent's got a particular issue that they want to remain confidential for the staff to work and it needs to be in an area with quite a high level of deprivation because that's where that's who I'm targeting people who are less likely the more people have the more they're able to ask for help so the less they have the more I need to do to, to reach, reach out to them. them yeah so if anyone's got any ideas of where we can do that then let me know when we were setting up the mics on this amazing sound stage that we have here <laughs> um you mentioned you're in a Westminster Hall debate Right. Well, when we were setting up the mics on my ironing board, you mean stop uh, soundstage? Soundstage. Stop yeah, yeah. trying to make it sound fancy. <laughs> Essentially, it's got padding on it. I mean, that's you know, <laughs> it's all ripped. Doesn't get used very often. It only gets used when you come round. Actually. <laughs> anyway, yes. When we were setting up the sound system on my ironing board, um, I was telling you I've I've secured my own Westminster Hall debate. So basically, Westminster Hall is like a smaller version of the Parliament. Um, you can watch these things online, and you get a sort of members debate so it's on an issue that matters to you um, so mine is the all-star uh, that this parliament has considered dot 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 and mine is consular assistance for the families of people who die abroad um, I've been involved in the past with an organization called Dana death abroad you're not alone set up by Julie Love who lives in Glasgow set up after her son Colin died after drowning in Venezuela and her experience of the consular assistance uh, offered uh, was not good and she was not alone. I think if I can do it, I'll probably talk about my own personal experience. My brother died in Germany and my experience matched many other people's experiences. Now there has been progress made, particularly in Scotland, she, Julie Love, has managed to convince the Scottish government that there should be a fatal accident inquiry for any Scot who dies abroad. And I would have loved that. Well, I wouldn't have loved a fatal accident inquiry when my brother died, but it would have it would have put my mind at rest over a number of things that, that my mind will probably never be at rest over. So for people who experience that, it's really important. And there has been progress made in terms of Westminster, the Foreign Affairs Committee considered a lot of the evidence, came up with a report, um, but it's just that everything hasn't been implemented and there seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding where a lot of progress has been made for uh, assistance, not, not it's not perfect, but assistance for people whose family members are murdered abroad but there's lots of other people die abroad in other circumstances. So basically, I'll be leading on the debate and the minister will be there to respond to and other people will come and speak in it. And it's half past four next Wednesday. When you're back up in the constituencies, Anne, what sort of things take up your time when you're back up in Glasgow? Uh, well, apart from surgeries and, you know, visiting constituents, um, I try to get around as many organisations as possible. Uh, like yesterday, I spoke at the AGM of the Good Morning Service, which is an incredible organisation. I knew them several years back, maybe seven years ago. They've really expanded since then. But basically, um, if you live in Glasgow or in South Ayrshire, hopefully other councils will take it up, and you're over 60... Um, you can sign up to this charity and they will basically phone you on a daily or a weekly basis to check that you're all right. 
Um, it's up to you. You choose which level you want at, but they're a very light touch um, approach. So basically, um, there are, there, I was speaking to people, like a woman in her 80s, and she gets a call every morning to make sure she's all right. And if she's not all right, if she doesn't answer, they've got your next of kin to contact to, to make sure you go out and, and check up. But more than that, they don't just phone up and say, you're fine, fine, I right, cheerio, then hang up the phone. They phone up and they have a chat with the person. So that, that might be the only person that you speak to all day. They have a chat and, you know, just, you know, pass the time of day with them, which I think is really important. So basically, it's good morning service and the AGM is in Postle Park. But as I say, they cover all of Glasgow and they cover all of South Ayrshire and they are funded partly by both local authorities. So anyone in the constituency um, over the age of 60 or if it's your mum or dad that's over the age of 60, get in touch with them. Just Google good morning service Springburn, Glasgow, and they'll come up. Yeah, it sounds, um, sounds really interesting. Emotional, mm. physical health are really tied together. Yeah. You know, there's a story recently, I think, uh, an English radio station, um, a, an, an old chap phoned up and it's him and his wife are lonely. And yes. it's those sorts of things that, you know, loneliness and just connecting with folk. And that was a, that was a married couple when they together mm. felt lonely. So anything that kind of just checks in the people to make sure they're okay. It's the sort yeah. of thing that doesn't make it into NHS targets or things like yeah. that, but a real human service then. But it does impact on um, NHS funding, I think, because people, what most people who use the service were saying in the annual report was that they feel more confident about living independently. It makes them feel confident that they can do it. Um, and the more confident you feel about it, the more successfully you'll do it and the longer you'll stay out of hospital. So it's an incredible service. I can't remember, I think it was started up seven or eight years ago. Really, really good. And um, certainly I would, I mean, I'm going to do stuff about it anyway. I'm going to promote it widely um, so that more people start to use it. And if it wasn't ticking all these boxes in terms of keeping people out of hospital, keeping them in their own homes, um, then the councils and the health boards wouldn't be funding it. Um, so there's a good reason why they do fund it. When you think of those networks that we're all fortunate to have, probably mm. most people listening to this have, where you've got friends or family who would notice if you were a bit off. Yeah. Or if you weren't feeling too good or if you didn't didn't come round that day. Yeah. And people who don't have those networks are really isolated and it must yeah. be really easy for them just to kind of slip off the radar. So yeah, it seems like a really worthwhile service. So I would just encourage anybody, even if you don't feel particularly old, if you're over 60, you know, why not think about signing up to it? And that brings us to the end of another episode of Parliamental. No. I know. But hey, we'll be back again to do another one. When? In a fortnight. Yay! Um, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can contact us on Twitter at ParlamentalPod, on Facebook, search for Parliamental, and via email at parliamentalpodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. So as we said, we should be back in another fortnight, Anne. Yep. Yep. So, you know, listen in then. And thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.